it's very simple. If you're going to improve the lives of children through education, then the people who are educating them and the community around that education system have to be healthy and well. And it need it's it's the it's a very simple mirror. You're you're trying to you know I talk about coming out of of education feeling I understood myself because of the teachers around me, because of the the culture I find myself in, because of the support that was given to me. So well-being for teachers and learners is about well-being for our children through our teachers and through our teachers recognizing that they can learn from our children and that they can learn from our parents and all the way around. And I think that whole community, whole school community is to the benefit of everybody. Welcome to Lighting a Fire, all things teaching and learning with the Teaching Council. Welcome to episode number five in the Teaching Council's Lighting a Fire podcast, the podcast where we discuss all things teaching and learning with a diversity of voices. My name is Thomas O'Rourke and I'm the director and CEO of the Teaching Council here in Ireland. Today I'm joined by our guest host for this podcast episode, that's Angela Lynch, who's the Principal Advice Manager at the Irish Primary Principals Network, or the IPPN. Angela, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience, please? My name is Angela Lynch, and I have been working with IPPN since 2011. Um, I began my schooling in Glasheen Girls School in Cork, and I won't tell you how many years ago now that was, mm-hmm. but at the I left there, went to second level school, and came back there as a teacher, where I taught for 36 years, and 20 of those as principal. So I suppose my journey has been one of the journey of Glasheen Girls School right up through it, where I suppose the whole thing started for me and I ended up where I am now. Wow, a a powerful sense of rootedness and sense of place, I think, coming through in in your journey Mm -hmm. there as a student and as a teacher and as a principal. Angela, you may be aware we ask the same question of our guest host before we come to our guests in each episode. Mm -hmm. And that's the title of the podcast series is Lighting a Fire, All Things Teaching and Learning. If I was to ask you in the widest sense, the most open sense possible, what does the phrase lighting a fire bring up for you? What would you say? Lighting the fire. I I suppose at this stage, I have been described as having a passionate obsession around leadership. And sometimes that can be a bad thing because it takes up most of your life. But I think that passionate obsession began by the fire that was lit when I was going to school in the first place. Now, my schooling would have been quite a happy time for me, um, quite um, a time when I enjoyed school and I saw the good in it. But yet at the same time, I saw the injustices too that other children suffered because maybe they weren't quite as privileged as I was in having parents who were very supportive. And also, I think my my parents, both parents came from a very GA background and were highly esteemed within the community. They were quite well known. So I think I went into school a very protected child, somebody who was somewhat privileged, and I enjoyed that. But it didn't stop that feeling that some children were not as lucky as I was. And I think I took that right through that sense of injustice and that they suffered in their schooling. And I felt it could be different for other children um, or it should be like it was for me. And I think from a very early age, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. Never um, thought that I would get to the stage of being a school leader. But for me, that was a significant step also because it um, it lit that that passion for me where leadership was concerned and school leadership. Uh, it was... Um, how would I say, it was a chance for me to influence the culture within the school, to make it something different, an all-inclusive culture. And that was that was where the passion started. So I, I think I've kept that all through. And it was a journey then right through from my early childhood, my early schooling into second level. And again, then as a teacher, as a school leader, and then maybe into the whole area of system leadership, where I felt that I could be a very positive influence, 
both on a personal level with other school leaders, but also maybe at a system level. So, so I, I think that was quite a journey for me. Big time. And then there's a number of, of I think, understandings of a fire in what you described mm-hmm. there, you know, the passion. And, and we'll come to that, I'm sure, in our discussion with Niall and the whole area of well-being and overdoing things, as you say, with a passionate drive, but nurturing, warmth, inclusivity, bringing people together. Mm-hmm. And then the sense of the, the passion for what, for, for what you love doing in terms of teaching and education, the school and the community, that passion never dying out, the fire never mm-hmm. dying out. So there's so many layers to that, I think, that we could easily pick up on uh, in our conversation with, with Niall. So that brings us, I suppose, to our, our guest uh, in this episode. Uh, that's Dr. Niall Muldoon, who is uh, w- was recently uh, successful in securing a second term as Ireland's Ombudsman for Children. Niall's background is as a clinical psychologist, and he has worked in the area of child protection for a number of years. And as Ombudsman for Children, Niall is very much focused on the creation and as was the fostering of an Ireland where children and young people are actively heard actively heard. Niall, do you want to say a bit more about who you are, your journey becoming Ombudsman for Ireland before we kick off the conversation in a broader sense? Yeah, thanks very much, Tomas. Yeah, um, uh, I mean, I started off, I'm a Donegal man, born and bred. Um, spent my first few years working in the Bank of Ireland in Chewham first and then Galway. Uh, I started Chewham and then Ballsbridge. I didn't go to college until I was 23 years of age. Um, in those days, back in the, the late 80s, I hadn't done a second language, so I couldn't get into any college in Ireland. Um, Trinity was the only one open to me, but I hadn't. they would only accept mature students who were 25. So the system was really against me. But the good thing was that I, the EU, unfortunately Brexit has done away with us now, but the EU meant that I would go to London and get my uh, fees paid for over there. Um, went over to England, spent four years in college in London, doing a degree in psychology. Came back to Ireland, worked for with Johnny Gods and in, in intellectual disability for about two years. Went back, did a master's in psychology, and then went and spent 10 years working in a, a place called the Granada Institute, working with adults who are sexually offended against children in the child protection agency and adults suffered abuse. And then moved on to uh, completed my PhD in psychology while I was there and uh, working as a senior clinical psychologist. Moved then to CARI, which is uh, Children at Risk in Ireland, work with families who are affected by abuse and children affected by abuse before moving into the Ombudsman for Children's Office um, in 2012 as Director of Investigations um, and then applying for the job as Ombudsman in 2014 um, and been very lucky to have been selected through a process in which children were involved in the interview process to be selected and nominated as, as Nomadsman for Children in 2015 um, with the target to um, try and change the systems and improve the systems for children all over Ireland and promote and protect all the, the rights of children across Ireland. So that's what brings me here and I'm absolutely humbled and honoured to get a second term on this. I'm really delighted to, to get that opportunity to, to go again for another six years. And well deserved. And congratulations to you to you on that. I'm going to come Thank back you. to that obviously in the, in the body of the conversation. Um, so before we go any further, and we have the same opening question for our guests as well, I'll come to that in a second, but just to, uh, I suppose, reassure us all, myself, Angela, and yourself, now that we see this very much as a conversational engagement. If there's points I'm raising or questions that either myself or Angela are asking, and you want to kind of get our thoughts on them or put them back to us, put us in the hot spot, whatever, that's that's uh, perfectly fine. I say that now, I probably won't feel it later on. If you I look forward that. to that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. That, I would that's love I would love to put you in the hot spot, Moss, <laughs> in particular. That's, that, that's what the script says. I have to stick to the script, you know. But um, So, Niall, tell me this. The, the opening question we have is, what, essentially, in, in simplest terms, but it's obviously very complex, <laughs> what, what's the, what was school like for you growing up, primary and post-primary? How would you describe your school days? School was, school was good for me, mostly. Um, I went to school very young. I was probably three. I think it was just over, just, uh, I was short of my f- Fourth birthday, I think when I went in, um, immature probably, but essentially I was always a big student, big child. Um, I would nowadays have been classified as obese uh, as I went through school, through primary school. But it meant that I was I was safe enough from from bullying and from any issues like that. People were, were but I I always found myself uh, protecting the younger kids, um, sort of looking after the underdog. It was always something in my DNA, I think. Um, but I went through primary school in, in the late 70s, just at the tail end of corporal punishment before it was banned. 
So I saw an awful lot, and I, I, I touched, Angela's touching on it there in relation to sort of injustice and kids who weren't as supported by their parents as we would have been might have felt the, the wrath of a teacher more often. Um, you know, I saw many good, intelligent young people um, being physically attacked just because they couldn't do their a certain academic thing. They were bright in many other ways, technically, mechanically, um, agriculturally. Those were their skills. Um, so... I suppose I always had that sense of an underdog coming out of primary school. Secondary school was great for me. I thrived in it, um, learned how to make friends, learned how to navigate difficult situations, mixed school, um, you know, never that great academically, but always felt I could hold my own. Didn't, uh, played all sorts of sports, um, got my leaving start at the age of 16 years of age. Those are the days when you didn't have TY or anything. Um, so rather than going on to university, um, I stayed on and did an extra year as a, as a um, secretarial class, which was fantastic. It was really like my own TY. Um, myself, there was, I think there's three lads. We were the first three lads in the country to do it, but it put us in with 30 young girls, which was great. <laughs> we played all sorts of sports and did whatever we had to do. It was great crack. Um, then I got a job in the bank and moved on. So for me, school was about friendships. I still have friends that I went to infant school with, infant class. They're some, some of my best friends back in Donegal. Um, learning, maturing, growing, interacting with adults, learning who I was. I think I got a lot of that out of the school system. Um, didn't necessarily get the points, but I did. You know, my ambitions in school were to be a PE teacher and to play county for Donegal, neither of which came true. But uh, lots of other things came out of it from my point of view. I really, I really enjoyed my schooling. I, I, I mean, clearly that was Donegal's massive loss now that you never made it to, 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 to the team, you know. Just Correct, Ross, to... yeah. Thanks, yeah. The checks in the post to Ross, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but more seriously, Dwayne, on that point, and, you know, when you talk about, I suppose, at the space that many young people in sixth year, and even in fifth year and senior, and really throughout school, but a position many young people will be in, which is what do, at such a young age, relatively speaking, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? What do I want to be? And I remember in that space and thinking, there's only one answer to that question. You have to even the thinking, you have to answer that question now. That there is that's a valid question. What do I want to be for the rest of my life? And you must answer it now. Given neither of your very laudable ambitions, I must say, now to be a member of the teaching profession, note, and uh, to, <laughs> to play county for Donegal, given neither of those were fulfilled, but you strike me from all the time of knowing you as someone who's very fulfilled in your career, very fulfilled in your life and all the rest, what would you say to those who are now maybe stressed out by that notion of that question having to answer it? I think we need to reframe it completely. I think, uh, you know, the majority of our children, 65% of our children get 400 points or less. And that's the sort of area that most people are in. That's, that's general. There's nothing wrong with that. That's an average and that's appropriate. I think we need to start reminding our children that, especially nowadays, and they can probably see it from most of their parents nowadays, what you need to ask is, what do you want to do for the next 10 years? You know, so once you get a degree, I think and most of the time people getting degrees nowadays, it's still, you still often go on to do a master's. It's just finding there's there's changes all the time in the future and being ready to change and adapt what you do for your life and what your career is 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 a viable option um i was born and bred and my my father had a heart attack when i told him i was leaving the bank because it was a safe secure pensionable job and nobody left those jobs in those days um so but that's not the way it is nowadays people need to be adaptable people need to be able to change they need to be flexible you can even see what we've had to do in the last 12 months for remote learning our teenagers need to recognize that it isn't a decision for life it's a decision for now but can you do you have the skills to adapt into the future can you pick a degree now and finish that degree make the best out of it and you still want to go somewhere else there is always that option there's so many choices nowadays if you get less points than you expect there's more options if you get uh, a degree that you didn't expect to take, can you use that and, and build on it? Um, I, I love the saying that the definition of luck is where opportunity meets preparation. Mm. I always think that, it, you know, I've been lucky in the opportunities that came my way, but I also worked hard to prepare myself for what opportunities might come my way. You know, so my, my training in the bank taught me how to be fastidious, and how to how to take notes and make sure I, I didn't leave details behind. They taught me that all the time. Very, very, you had to be precise about your money and how, where every penny went. That was useful for me in psychology because it taught me how to take notes properly and never miss a trick. And that helped me when I went to court. 
that learning then helped me as an ombudsman for children to sort of look around. Training of psychology helped me to be empathic and, and listen properly and be an active listener. So everything can help you to move on if you prepare properly and put your heart and soul into whatever you're doing. And you can take lessons out of every one of them. I think this concept that you have only one chance at this and only one throw of the dice is so wrong. And it just it just puts too much pressure on people. You have a throw of the dice and that's called leaving cert. But there's many throws after that. Absolutely. If I might just come in there, Niall, um, it, it struck me about what you were saying that particularly in second level, you began to develop as a person and you began to know yourself. For, for me, I think it was when I became a teacher first and I became conscious and developed a real, and I'll go back to that word again, passion for knowing myself. And I keep um, saying to, to people that the the most important thing in life was actually me getting to know myself, self-awareness, because until you have that, you can't really relate to other people. And especially in the teaching profession uh, and being a school leader, I think it's, uh, I heard somebody saying one time it was 80% relationships and the other 20% was about relationships. So like it's developing yeah. there as a person. And it, it it just strikes me that you haven't stopped learning or haven't stopped knowing yourself and discovering things about yourself and developing as you go along. W would that be true to say in your case? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's always my target. I mean, I, I keep saying to children, mm. I don't know if I'm the best ombudsman there is, but I'm the best ombudsman I can be. And it's up to mm. other people to judge that. You know, it's, it's the same if I'm a, um, if I'm out managing a team of under 12s. Am I the best manager I can be? That's all I can be. That's the only control I have. And I'm constantly trying to improve myself in everything I do. But it's only to be better for myself. And that was always my drive. When I went to university at 24 years of age, Nobody in, my nobody in my house had ever gone to university. So all my target was to get to Christmas. Can I be good enough to get to Christmas? Can I be good enough to get through first year? And that's, you take them in steps and you work from there to keep improving yourself. And each, each step that you do helps you build confidence for the next step. But don't ever be afraid to take the next step. Was that sort of what I've always been lucky to do. You left out there now, the best, the best Donegal footballer there ever, there, there never was. <laughs> 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 thank you thank you but okay. it, it'll be like back as a sports psychologist at some stage Maybe that's the only way I'll get on it <laughs> yeah and that that could well come true also um, I, I think one of the things that um, I certainly bought into as a school leader and I think a lot of school leaders from my own experience have have bought into it also is that they have to be perfect and the biggest lesson I think I learned and I, I keep saying to people is that um, that of the imperfect leader, because there is no such thing as perfection. And um, when you strive for perfection, you're setting yourself up for failure in so many ways that there is no such thing. Um, so, like, I was always afraid of dropping a ball. There were so many balls in the air that I was trying to keep in the air and being afraid that if I dropped one, it was going to be an important one and everybody was going to find out what a fake this person is. But actually, if we don't allow for um, mistakes to be made within anything, we'll never take risks. There'll be no creativity. Mm. We'll never learn from them. Mistakes are the opportunity to learn. So like creating that culture where obviously you don't want people to be taking undue risks, but at the same time, allowing them to make mistakes and then saying, right, let's see what we have learned from this and we move on. So like it's not really about perfection, but about being good enough at the time. And I think and you mentioned it there as well, being the best person you could be as ombudsman there. Um, and it, it it also seems to me like that people will follow the person, not the role, which is why it's really important 
as a leader in any capacity, in any part of society, that you become the best person that you possibly could be. And in doing that, people will take their cue from you. They will follow you, not the role. Yeah. Um, I think that's. I mean, I think that's a great, great commentary, Angela. And I think so many of the principles are are phenomenally energy, energetic, but are concerned mm-hmm. about failing. Whereas, as you say, I think if they lead from the front and say, "Listen, that's a mistake I made," I, I coach mm-hmm. or I, I uh, would lecture on, on psychology, and I keep telling people, as long as you make a mis- mistake with respect, then those mistakes tend to be small and they tend to be easy to fix up. Because you've mm-hmm. probably engaged with people about it before, you've concerned, considered what you're going to do before you make the, the, the decision. If it turns out to be a decision, it's based on the best practice and you apologize and you're humble enough to re- recognize, okay, where do we go from here? Those mistakes tend to be smaller and much more easily to fix. Whereas if you're dogmatic and try to be, you know, ignore the best advice, then leaders make big mistakes that are very hard to come back from. Um, I think once you're once you're open to to learning like that, I think so many teachers and leaders in, in education are like that. They're humble, they're uh, wise, and they they take on the views of of the people around them, so that the mistakes that are made are minimal. There, there's mm-hmm. something in the space between both of you in terms of you know Angela's describing this sense of almost the school leader assuming on their own that it's up to them to perfect. And you and your answer, Niall, then talk about you say to others. If we're going to make with the we, we're going to make a mistake, make it with respect. I think it's a lovely, lovely phrase. And for the purpose of our audience, obviously, this gathering is not entirely coincidental because the three of us represent three of the bodies in the Wellbeing for Teachers and Learners consortium or group. The others being the NAPD, that's the National Association for Principals and Deputy Principals at post-primary level, the National Parents Council for Primary, uh, for, uh, for Parents, National Parents Council at primary level, and Teacher Council Turns Ombudsman and the IPPN as well. And one of the things I want you to, because I'm particularly interested in your perspective, Niall, as the children's ombudsman. So the the focus of your office, legitimately and constitutionally and everything else, is the children, at the heart of the community, the heart of the process of teaching and learning. But you have elected, you've opted into this group, which has the teaching profession, school leadership, parents and so forth. Given that those stresses that, that Angela so well described, and the IPPN are very much have their finger on the pulse on this, you know, the, the workload pressures and concerns of, of school leaders, why are you in the group? Is that not kind of a contradiction, some would argue, that you're, you're, your focus is the child, and here you are consorting, some may say, with the teachers and the parents and the school leaders and so on. Why? What, 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 what has brought you into the group and what has kept you in the group? So it's it's very simple. If you're going to improve the lives of children through education, then the people who are educating them and the community around that education system have to be healthy and well. Um, and it need it's it's the it's a very simple mirror. You're you're trying to you know I talk about coming out of of education feeling I understood myself because of the teachers around me, because of the the culture I find myself in, because of the support that was given to me. Um, and that's so well-being for teachers and learners is about well-being for our children through our teachers and through our teachers recognizing that they can learn from our children and that they can learn from our parents and all the way around and I think that whole community whole school community is to the benefit of everybody the one the one thing that I really want to break down in all the jobs I do is silos and I think the fact that we put this group together, that we're part of this group, is a way of breaking down those silos so that we all understand each other's point of view. We don't always agree with it. We don't always know what to do to make things better for each other. But well-being for teachers and learners is about the whole school community maximizing the impact it can have on the whole school community, not just on the children. You know, but if you could happy, healthy children who are educating themselves well, then the teacher's job is much easier, and so is the parents. If you've happy, healthy parents doing able to contribute and support their t- their child to be educated, then the teacher's job is made easier. So it works in every way, and from my point of view, that's the only way that our children can maximise the education. The other piece I want to remind you of is, you know, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child is the piece that we we follow through. And everybody keeps speaking about Article 28, which is the right to a high level of education. But it also has Article 29. And it's worth maybe reading it out again for people because I think our education system has forgotten it. It says that the that a child or young person's education should help their mind, body and talents to be the best they can be. It should also build their respect for other people and the world around them. 
It says, in particular, they should learn to respect their rights and the rights of others, their freedoms and the freedoms of others, their parents, their identity, language and values of countries, including their own. And finally, Article 29 says, education should prepare children and young people for a responsible life in a free society. It should teach them how to live in an understanding and tolerant way that is non-violent and respects the environment. This is this is 40, 50 years old, and it really has a finger on the pulse. But I think all we ever heard was points, points, points. You know, that is the definition of a well-rounded community culture within a school, if you can achieve those things. And we don't give credit to the schools who do achieve those things. And to me, that's the, the target we need to have more of in our education system. That ability to allow our children to educate them, their mind, their body, and their talents. And I think all that happens where at the moment we spend too much time on our academic mind. And I think that's, to the, that's you know, so I think that's part of, that's my rationale behind being part of this group. And I'm so delighted to be involved in it. With, with a vision like that, we're glad you're in it too, Niall. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so many, I, I'm sure I answered about 10 different questions. If we're not, where do you see the gaps? You see, there's a vision clear you've articulated there in Article 29 of the UN Convention. You contrast that with the annual focus, which is continuing through COVID, it must be said, on the points raised and the focus on college. And, you know, Minister Harris has commented on this in, you know, in the further education, higher education space, saying we need to, as a society, and this comes to my question to you, his, his point implicitly acknowledges that this is, come back to your point, a community issue. It's not just the universities, not just the schools, not just the students, all of us in different ways, whether we realise it or not, I, I think it could be argued, are complicit in this. How do we shift that, Niall? Where are the gaps in this? How come we're still so focused on the degree programmes and the points of whereas there are so many opportunities in, hidden in plain sight that are getting overlooked in that space and driving the pressures and stresses on young people and school leaders and so on? Where, how can we shift that thinking, do you think? Well, it's, it's not going to be an easy thing, but obviously you, you, you'd be aware and all, most of your listeners would be aware that, you know, there is a senior cycle review. And I think, first of all, we need to speed that up. You know, I think the target, I remember when it was launched, the target was that it would be it would come into being in 2030. I think we need to see the senior cycle review in, in being by 2024, perhaps. And it needs to look at the holistic person, the child as a rounded person as they come out of school. Those elements that come into Section 29. I think Minister Harris, to his, in fairness, has gone a long way because you're now talking about the CEO involving levels four, five, and six. So that's giving credit to those people who are under, who get their 400, the 65% of our people who get their 400 points or whatever, who are looking to go in a different direction legitimately because that's what they love. They want to be doing mechanical work. They want to be doing apprenticeships. They want to be doing building work. They love it and they're good at it. And it starts to value that as well. And I think we need to move in that direction so that we recognize anybody can 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 come out of a school as a holistic well-rounded individual they won't always come out with 600 points but the other parts are just as valuable you know and the the example i've always given is the the concept of moving to maybe five subjects that are done over four days and on the fifth day you allow the child to be who they want to be and spend a day doing gardening hairdressing mechanics landscape gardening um whatever it might be that they love doing working with old people working with children and they get credit for that as well so that straight away you're allowing those talents that we talked about to come to the fore and be recognized as a valuable asset for that young person um and those are sort of things that you know we can really build on very easily um so I think it's it's starting to move that way. And I think the senior cycle review, again, the first time ever the Department of Education have asked the children what they wanted from the senior cycle. And they've come up with simple stuff like, you know, if we've got seven subjects across two years, can we not do one or two of them in the first year? Get it over with. That's a simple thing to do. You know, from right from the mouths of babes, so to speak. But let's listen to them. Let's see what they want. And let's move it from that way. And I think from that point of view, we come out more rounded and recognize. And again, our employers will start to see that. Because oftentimes the A student is not necessarily the person that's going to be the best in the job when you get to the practical side of things. But if you have a good B student or a C plus student who's done a lot of experience in different ways, then you can get a lot more out of them as well. So it's recognizing the whole totality of the individual is how I would see the leaving certain moving in that direction. 
And we, I think we we look at our, we speak about education as being the holistic development for, of the child. And ultimately, I think if somebody, if a child or a, a child or student can leave school and say that they have developed resilience, they have been taught resilience. I don't think it's enough to, to say, look, you need to be resilient, you need to get up. We have to give them strategies. We have to give them the language to talk about feelings, to be able to, to be resilient when things drive them down. Now, generally, we look at resilience and well-being of children and of all of us, I suppose, when a disaster or a trauma occurs, which is not the best time to do it. Uh, the best time to do it is when there is no trauma, there's no, um, you're not left on the ground with something. Um, and you give them skills and uh, competencies there that they can use when times are tough. So if, if we can teach them that, um, we need to be looking, we need to be taking time to have conversations around this. We can build it into the curriculum. And you spoke about the um, the uh, second level curriculum there. But we also need to be putting more of the focus into developing these things through the primary school curriculum to the SPHG program, through absolutely through everything that we do. But I think we also need to be taking time with our school staffs, both at primary and second level, to be having these conversations um, around the importance of it. How are we going to build it into the day-to-day -day, uh, work of the school? Everything that we do as a school has to be underpinned by well-being and about developing resilience, developing confidence self-esteem in our children. So it, it isn't just something that you isolate to a particular subject. We deal with it there and then it's done. It's about the person that you meet there in front of you, whether that's the an, an adult, a, a parent, a teacher, a staff member or a child. When you meet them there, you're doing it all the time. You're building their resilience. You're building their confidence in that there are people that they can talk to when they need to, if they have a problem and giving them the, the confidence that they're going to be listened to without being ridiculed or humiliated or anything like that, that there's always somebody there to help. And you're promoting the whole concept of talking about feelings. But we have to teach them also to recognize those feelings, those emotions and then give them the language to be able to, des to describe it. But I think the importance of staffs within schools, with meeting with parents or wherever it is, that we take time to have the conversations rather than saying, we don't have time to do this. We need to be talking about more important things. We need to talk about the curriculum. Well, like there is no, nothing more important. So that's the very time where you need to take the time to have conversations. And I'm, I've kind of used a phrase at the, at the moment about school leaders being the brokers of conversations. And I think it links in maybe with the Teaching Council Beacons um, program there, the, the importance of conversations. This is where we're going to get real change and real uh, um, direction of everybody's well-being being the most important thing and underpinning everything that we do, both in school and in society. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose just underpin that. I think, Tomas, I think you, you needed to correct credit for that Beacons concept because it's, mm -hmm. you know, I think what, what often comes out of it, what I've seen a couple of times, is that people are still shocked by what the children understand and know and what they mm -hmm. say. You know, and that's that's amazing to come from teachers who are still shocked by the quality and depth of understanding the children have. And that's from primary school, children with special needs, children with different diverse backgrounds. Once you start listening to the children and listen to everybody in that conversation, that whole rounded conversation from all aspects of, of education, 
yeah, I think it's it's a fantastic uh, initiative and it's great credit to the teaching council for bringing it forward. Well, I appreciate that, folks. And it brings me to a question for yourself, Niall, because you reminded me of the event, the Beacons. So Beacons for our audience stands for Bringing Education Alive for our communities on a national scale. And it's a model we're seeking to work out with the EU and the OECD now on, is it possible to develop a model whereby teachers and parents and students and the whole community, but at its core, the teachers, parents and students, is it possible to develop a model whereby they can converse with each other, taking Angela's comments on board, on a regular basis, just to make sense of life and school life for, for each other. And then the one that was held in the Northeast Inner City, and I, I don't think you admit that when you're having to do others, in fairness, but number one, it was that piece whereby when they actually listened to each other in their peer groups, parents in one, teachers in another, principals in another, and they were asked what surprised them, they were all surprised within a matter of an hour how quickly trust built and how much they had in common. And the students mm. didn't realize how stressed the principals were, for example, and that would be music to the IPPN's ears, I would have thought. There was understanding of everyone's particular challenges. But in the same night, Niall, and this is something you've referenced a few moments ago, and I wouldn't mind if you expand a bit more on it. There were members of staff from a state agency who work with children on the edge. And they were delighted to be there. They had been invited by one of the schools, I think. But they said it was the first time, if I remember correctly, they'd actually met with the teachers of the school concerned that their work was so focused on the child and outside of school and so on, they'd never had this opportunity before. So given your earlier comments of breaking down silos, and this is an unusual group in the W2L and so forth, again, I suppose that question, where are the gaps? You know, How much more can we, should we be doing as a system? And I think it's, I would, maybe if you have any thoughts about the third sector, the voluntary community sector, the private sector, the public sector, because we're all dealing with the same people. We're all working we're all, you know, with our parents and so on in different spaces. So how much more can and should we be doing in terms of breaking down silos and fostering interagency collaboration in the widest sense possible? I, th- I think we can never do enough. I think uh, Ireland has built up a system that was, that was, if you go back historically, it was established through a British system. Just It was just a copy of a British system. So it's 100 years old. I don't think we've adapted it that much. It's a... It's, uh, concept that was built on the on the idea of um outsourcing education using religious system it's just that's just the way it is um you know and in europe it's it's such an outlier in, in regards to europe so it's it's really um set up to have silos and we need to get past that more and more so whether it's the board of management whether it's the patrons whether it's the unions we all need to start figuring out who are the service users here you know again if i keep I keep reminding the, the public service and, and public agencies that, you know, if you design this around the service user, whoever that is, whether it's, whether you're a revenue commissioner or a department of education, you will get a much better, more intuitive system that works better for everybody and has let less complaints. Um, and I think if we start to do that now, we need to start looking at what is, what's the best way for a child to come through our education system from the first early years all the way through to third level. And how can we make that move and that uh, transitions as smooth as possible? And who helps to do that? So for interagency cooperation is, is one of the things that I'm, I'm really big on for the next, it'll be my target over the next six years to try and improve that, whether it's HSE Tusla, whether it's Tusla Guards, whether it's Department of Education, or even, I would suggest, even subsets within Department of Education oftentimes don't work as best they can do. And one of the things that drives that, from my point of view, is... is Annual only budgets, you know, nobody builds a business or builds a service based on only getting a 12 months pocket money. You know, you've got to plan ahead. You've got to know what's in, in, available in the next three years. Per, the poor principles, the stress would be relieved completely if they knew that a three-year budget. Straight away, you would change things the way you deal with things. It would mean that you could hire people for, for long contracts and people would take those contracts. If you're only hiring a, a young student or a, a newly qualified teacher for nine months they have lots of other choices they want to make but if you can tell them right i've got a three-year budget here then they can make a commitment to that area and commitment to those children and really decide to go for it yeah. those are small things that, that shouldn't be a, a big issue for anybody but that's built on built on a political decision that i need to be able to control the budget next year whereas even within business you know okay i'll give you a three-year budget but we always with the proviso that you can adjust things that would change interagency cooperation. That would change the stresses on people. That would allow people to think further and differently and innovatively. You know, uh, you might only have a two-year project, so you've got a few quid left over in the third year. How can I use that better? And you can really change things. So within the Department of Education, within the education system, it's recognizing that 
each person's role is to serve the child. And if you do that right, everybody other's role becomes easier. As opposed to, I think at the moment, there's a sense of whatever you do, don't set a precedent in anything new and innovative. Don't pilot something that might cost me money. Don't tell too many people about how you've done a good job. Keep it to yourself. You know, and it's the it's the absolute opposite of what Apple would do or what Microsoft are doing. How do we innovate and how do we change things? And let me encourage you to change things. Let me give you the opportunity to change things. And the whole essence of, of good business is to make it smooth and innovative and intuitive. You know, so if, if I have a child with a special needs and they're born with a special needs, my system should allow me to move through its clothes smoothly and education should just be part of that. That's... I'm not sure if that's answered your question in pragmatic terms, but it's certainly in, in theoretical terms, that's that's my target and my hope. I think one of the things that you mentioned there was about the whole area of special needs. And I think that has come very much to the fore as a result of um, COVID-19 and all that has transpired. So I, I suppose we look on the on the uh, downside of COVID and all that has meant. But like there must certainly be lessons to learn uh, from COVID or to be taken from it that can be uh, described as opportunities that we now have to do something that um, will improve the lives uh, of everybody. So like there have you sort of identified some of those lessons um, I, I think from a school's point of view, one of the lessons that we have learned is the importance now of the whole school community coming together to do what is in the best interest of the child, of the children within our school communities. And that won't be achieved. School needs home, home needs school in order for it to work effectively. And I know that um, there were there have been certain good practices highlighted that have happened over the last twelve months that schools will take from that, and they they will do the work on the ground. But where the wider society is concerned, we now need to work together. Have you identified areas there that you think the wider society need to address at this point in time that will? and make life better for everybody. Yeah, I I would be I've been putting forward a thing called the COVID dividend, this concept of of asking the government and the state to to dream big for our children so we can change the future over the next five to ten years for every child. And I've I've three sort of requests of them. First of all is that you know within three weeks the government came together and created this PUP, the payment for for the pandemic. And to me, that should be the baseline for a living wage. You know, the concept that no family should be in trouble just because they can't afford to buy food or heat or clothes. The living wage would, would if we applied the living wage to all those children who are consistently in poverty and take their family out of poverty, we would change the way they educate themselves. We'd change the, the ambitions they would have for each other. We would change the way the parents are able to support those children. And we could change the future for all of that society. Secondly, I would suggest that the government need to start supporting the DASH communities in a different way and supporting the people around those DASH communities. So we've gone to the trouble of identifying over 800 schools in the country. So that's nearly a quarter of all our schools as being DASH. But we expect them to do all the work of society um, and fix the, fix the ills of society through the education system. But in fact, what they need to do is support this community that supports the school. So that those those adults that are there can come out of unemployment, they can be reskilled, they can be re-educated, they can perhaps even um, move in move in different directions with the proper support of, of a whole of government approach. So those children then can come home from a very supportive, well-resourced school into a supportive, happy family life and really, really thrive and stay in the community. Because oftentimes within the desk, we create really intelligent, articulate, ambitious children who leave the area because there's no jobs for them to stay in. So the role has to keep continuously creating new role models. Whereas what we need to do is raise the communities out of out of uh, disadvantage and eventually be proud of the fact that they are no longer desk schools or desk communities. 
The second, the last thing I'll be saying is we, we need to borrow big so that we can end homelessness and direct revision over the next five years. And again, that would have a huge knock-on impact on the well-being of our children throughout all schools. Because again, homeless, we've, we've chatted about this before, homelessness is affecting most, a lot of schools in various different ways where the children are coming in hungry, don't have the, don't have the uh, homework done, don't have the, the clothes all those areas. So if we can lift children out of homelessness, we can create a living wage and we can support the Danish communities. You're changing 20% of our whole population in a way that provides them with enough skills to look after themselves into the future in a self-sustaining manner. And it takes people away. It improves their health. It improves their mental health. It improves the, there's no less unemployment. There's less crime. It's a huge knock-on effect, but it means that government would have to be brave in how they borrow. And the example I've given is, is, um, a couple of things. NHS came out of the crisis of the Second World War. <laughs> Free healthcare for everybody. The Marshall Plan was $130 billion into Europe and created the biggest economic uh, country in the world with Germany through the bravery of America. In Ireland, we did it with Arden Crusher, where we built um, the biggest dam in, in Europe at the time. It took five years and one quarter of our whole um, national, national income at that stage in 1925. But it changed the uh, it changed the industrial future for us for fifty years because it created electrification throughout the country. That's the sort of bravery we need now. So the COVID becomes a positive landmark in history for us, and it changes the way all our children are treated. Um, that's that's my ask of the government. It's and hopefully it if we can get some of that and be brave enough to do that. But it has to be cross party. It has to be recognised across all the governments because it can't be a case of we do it for three years and then the change government and it's it's dropped. These are big investments, but they are big investments that will pay off enormously. So like you're saying, we can't um, have the status quo and expect a different outcome. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I think going back to the status quo... innovative... Um, yeah, going back to the status quo is only going to be everybody. beneficial to the middle class and to, to you know, it's, mm. there's so many people disadvantaged and COVID has highlighted where those disadvantages are. Mike Ryan of WHO has said it's crystallised the, the the cracks in society. COVID has clearly shown where people have been disadvantaged in various different ways, and it's not just that's not just financial. It's it's emotional. It's mental health. It's physical health. It's um, access to services. So many, very many people have, and this is an opportunity for us to change that into the future. Money has never been cheaper to borrow. This is the time to be brave and make a stamp on the future for the government and the state. Could we pick up on this one? Because money is one side of the equation and what the state should or should not be doing. And then we spoke earlier on about the mindsets challenge. The the, the, the communal, and I use that term advisedly, but kind of focus on the points race and the assumption in the media that this is the focus and so on. And the examples you cited now are really interesting. Like, you know, the Marshall Plan was learning from the mistakes of the aftermath of World War One. And winning the peace as well as the war. So you yeah. can't punish a country, et cetera, et cetera. And Arthur Crusher, you know, and even if I may actually, uh, uh, my own parochialism to bear here, for my Leaving Cert History Project, I studied the establishment of the sugar, sugar factory in Carlow yeah. in 1926, which was a, a major, you know, a as bold in its own way because it was establishing a factory that existed before. It was things with Belgium to bring over, you know, to advise in the building of the factory and so on. These were massively courageous decisions in the stage in, in its yeah. early years. And there were arguably single interventions, massively single interventions. You know, as you say, the art of Crusher paved the way for the electrification of the country over the next 50 years. So if we were to look at education now, uh, and apropos your earlier comments, which many people would challenge it, and you know that yourself in terms of the risk of throwing the baby out of the bathwater for so on. Uh, mm -hmm. but, and there are so many different issues in education. It could be special needs, additionally, there's, there's issues within special needs education alone. There's the homelessness or provision. But if there was one intervention on a scale with our, you know, of Arctic Russia, it, it, the money was one thing, but it was the thinking of we must build a, a, an electrification resource here because that's crucial for the future of our country. We must regenerate the economies of Europe because otherwise we'd have another world war and we won't survive that one. So whatever you do, whatever money may or may not be available, what's the intervention you think that are, are change we could all make in education that could make a massive difference in the decades to come? Or is, is that an, an unfair question? I'm not 100% sure of that, but I, I do think the concept of moving us all out of, out of disadvantage, I think that, you know, I've and I've spoken about it before, the concept that, you know, we've had more complaints from the teaching service to say that we weren't, we weren't considered DESH 
you know, what should have been. And I'd rather people say, we want to come out of Desh. Nobody ever says that. I think that concept of moving, and again, having enough support to do that, having enough support to do that. So I think if we can find some way to support those people who consider themselves disadvantaged so that they no longer consider themselves disadvantaged, as opposed to we consider you because you're disadvantaged, end of story, that's it. That's the way you're always going to be. We're not going to change it. We need to change it. We need to get past that. And I don't know if that's, is that an education alone? I don't think it's within the gift of education alone. I think it's unfair. I think that's what we try to do is, is allow is it pour money into the schools and the education schools that are disadvantaged and hope that they would fix everything else. But that's impossible. So I think what I would suggest is that within education, the best thing they could get is support for the community around them. And again, bringing that well-being for teachers and learners, the school community is being supported, which will in turn make it much easier for the school leaders. But is that it then? And maybe Andrew will want to come in here as well. But is that the, the is that the brainwave for the next 50 years in terms of hidden in plain sight is the fact that the school does not begin and end at the school door? Mm-hmm. You, you, the phrase you use your initial response and, and like who wants to be a millionaire your, I must take your first answer is moving out of disadvantage now there are layers to that phrase now there are layers to that phrase in, in the best possible sense of the term and if we, we as a society as a nation a state and as a system of agencies approach it from education as a whole of community endeavour because teachers would be the first to say, I remember getting a round of applause at Fail Shingaba one year where I made the point that there's a risk in the discourse that well-being will be seen as a zero-sum game and that more student voice equals less teacher voice and that teachers don't like that. And, and, and there was a, a reaction to that from the teachers in the audience. So if we truly worked, thought, lived, connected on the understanding that education is a whole of community endeavour, then everything else falls into should fall into place in terms of targeting your disadvantaged supports at those in greatest need. So they lift out of poverty. They lift out of disadvantage. That schools, you know, the profile of students is not segregated according to school type or and all that goes, whatever. Is that maybe where you're going in your thinking, the whole of community space? I would expect so. I mean, I think if, if hasn't that what COVID has done? It's shown us, it's show, certainly shown every parent how important school is for, for more than just the teaching. It's shown that is crystal clear. That's why we're sending them back to school. It's not because we want them to learn their ABCs. It's because we want them to have friends. We want them to learn about each other. We want them to have play in the ground, play in the playground. We want them all those other, they love their teachers. They want that emotional connection with other people. So that part of education has been clearly clarified for so many parents. And then we need to do it the other way. How do we support the parents to be, help our children? You know, and we've seen that where the children, where the parents don't have enough funds for ICT, for for broadband, for computers, whatever it is, and then if they do have that, they don't have the skills to teach. So again, I think we we really had a fresh look through COVID at what our education system needs to be, and it does need to be all encompassing, as you say, it's the whole community that educates our child. Yeah, all encompassing. Yeah, it and um. Another element of that that I I think for that all-encompassing society or that move towards being um, all-inclusive is the whole area of rights and responsibilities. I think, you know, we have spoken long and hard about people's rights. They have the right to this, to that, to whatever it is. But for me, I think every right comes with an equal responsibility. And in doing that, I think um, people need, when they're talking about rights, they also need to to look at what can I do to um, support that right? What can I do? What is my part to play? What responsibility do I have in all of this to do it for myself or to do it for others? Um, to have, again, I'll come back to conversations we need to start talking about rights and responsibilities in the one breath. And that to me is how we can get, we can develop leadership capacity. And when I'm talking about leadership, I'm not just talking about school leadership. Everybody can be and has the capacity to be a leader in their own right. Um, Sometimes there has been a sense of, I'm waiting to be told what to do and how to do it. So it's, it's um, I'd sum it up in saying people are 
being led or they're quite willing to be to be led and to be told what to do rather than to actually take on that leadership role themselves, whether that is by speaking out against any of the injustices or what can I do rather than waiting for a, for a solution to be delivered by somebody else. Absolutely. So I, yeah. I think uh, we're, we have an opportunity now as well with the student and parent charter to actually look at it in this way. How can we as a school community, if we're um, delivering the, our, we're um, promoting or putting together a charter for our school, how can we work together where everybody has rights, certainly, but they also have responsibilities to feed in to that right? Cool. What's what's your take on the potential of the, of the charter, Niall? I know it's it's been going to the houses now for, for for some time now, but as and when it's got it comes on stream, what, what how what's its potential to make a difference in this space in terms of relationships and communication between the teachers, the parents, and the students? I think Angela has highlighted there. It, it, it to me that is the the mechanism by which you get those conversations going. It's the mechanism by which you measure your school in the future. The whole concept of a student and parent charter is that, and I know the, the, the many teachers will say, "Where's a teacher's charter?" But I think the, the concept of it is that it should be a whole community, whole school community charter. So that you all agree on first of January or first of September, this is what we want for the next twelve months, and we want more gardening, we want more rock and roll, we want a lot more science, whatever it might be, and you measure it at the end of the year. But everybody has an input to that. And that changes things. And again, from my point of view, that would change the way children feel about school because they love an ownership. It would change the way parents feel about it because they have an ownership. And it needs it can and again we have to be careful that it's not just the, the loud people who speak. Everybody gets a, you know, it's an inclusive conversation. But I do think that's the mechanism. If you have four thousand three hundred schools with a charter each. And each one is, they really are designing what they want. So that, that again, takes away the focus from, it's only about the A students. It's only about getting everybody into university. If you just, if you ask the students and you ask the parents, you will still have that target, but a lot of them will also say, and I want this, this, and this as well. And they create that open conversation. It creates an emotional piece to it because they want mental health. They want well-being. They want, you know, the things that they love doing will be in there somewhere and it'll have to be included and then you will have a report at the end of the year to say missed out on that you didn't do well enough on mental health for us so i think it is the mechanism by which every school can have these conversations not something to be scared of not something to be afraid of not not just a onus, but something that really changes the way we all engage with each other and creates a much more nuanced and powerfully motivating school atmosphere and again, that's dependent on the quality of the relationships that are developed there. So, again, that is uh, another thing that needs conversation, that development of the relationships, because you can then have conversations that where you might disagree with somebody, but the relationship stays intact. I mean, you can have, I, I think that's probably one of the areas that was my biggest learning over the years. I would have been one of those, and I became aware of this as a fault in myself. I would have made um, a molehill out of a mountain rather than the other way around. I certainly, I was very adverse to facing conflict and I actually learned that in doing that, you created more conflict so that I, I became interested in how you actually confront it, how you confront conflict. And I found I, be, I was good at it. So, like, I actually learned that in facing that particular fear, that particular weakness in myself, I developed a, a strength out of it that has stood me in great stead in the last number of years, in that I can now um, talk to people and help them to negotiate conflict. I, I think one of the phrases that, that we coined was um, conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. <laughs> so, that, that, that was one of great learning. And I think it kind of stuck with people. But like from your weaknesses, from your vulnerabilities, you can actually develop great strengths. 
and uh, this this was one of them. I can't even. I, I think I went off in a stream of consciousness. You do that. <laughs> <laughs> what, that what, point. What, and, what and I did have another point to make, but it's it's gone at this stage. I'm sure it will come back to me. Well, but it's that is an interesting space because we are again, I think, in the landing zone of the podcast at this stage. But we opened, if we recall, with uh, Angela speaking a lot about passion. Mm. and drive and the fire never going out and then there's another kind of strong zone of emotions here she's referring you're referring to Angela I should say in terms of conflict resolution and so on so if I was to ask you uh, what drives you and probably more mindful of the well-being zone we covered what sustains you in your role what would you say to in response I suppose the drive is, uh, as I said, maybe from way, way back, was just that, that sort of sense of an underdog. And, and, you know, fairness and justice is probably the key terms that I keep in mind. Um, and I, I'm very much aware that my job is, unfortunately, it's slow. Patience and, per- and, uh, patience and persistence are the two key terms we keep in our office because, you know, we don't change systems very quickly, but we have to keep at it. What sustains me, um, and that's probably the biggest, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to acknowledge I'm probably working about 70% because of COVID because what sustains me is is interacting with other people outside of the office. It's meeting the kids as well, just from the work side of things, going to schools, going to youth groups, meeting kids and and, and staff and adults who are working with them to see the great things they're doing. That, that's really geez me up. But then personally, you know, I'm involved with... Uh, senior football teams I'm involved with with other clubs and stuff like that just trying to just as a pastime as a hobby and I miss it terribly you know because that's again it gives you a total switch off to move from one thing to another and just to have a, a re-energized and I think friends and family have been missed you know um, that's so that really is I can see it as, as a 12 months on it's a big drain to miss those things yeah. um, but when they're there I, as I say, now I, now I can measure it as probably about 30% of my life is built around the recharging in those areas because it separates the two. It gives me a chance to to refocus and forget about all the, the big problems we all have and get, get going again and be ready to wake up the next morning flying. Um, you know, it's that's that's the stuff that sustains me. And, and give, given, Niall, and this is a serious question now, and given your young ambition to play County for Johnny Gall, how difficult is it for you to be training Dublin players in the sports now? I mean, that must really tear at your soul. <laughs> you haven't won. Tears at my soul. Um, I, I, I'm thankfully I was trained as a psychologist so I can compartmentalize how proud I am of the Dublin players that I've been involved with. Um, there's about three or four guys who've got the All Ireland medals that I would have helped in one stage or another. But uh, I would love, I would love one chance to have a Donegal player. Yeah. <laughs> Well, look, I, we've gone a little bit over time, but that's a good a sign of a, a good conversation. Um, I want to thank, uh, in no particular order, but yourself, Niall, first, but by being so open to the engagement, so honest with your life story, your thoughts on where education should be and should go and where the opportunities and challenges are. I think you've covered a, a, such a broad space in a relatively short period of time, an hour or a little more. Um, and this podcast, like all of them, but we'll be quickly worth the listen to, to all those who have... Um, and interested where we are right now. And to Angela, my 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 guest host in this particular podcast episode, I I can't remember who we first met, Angela, but I do recall I I'm very aware of how our relationship has evolved through the engagement of the IPPN, the Teaching Council, and particularly the area of well-being. And you've brought this as to this podcast is always a passion, that word passion, um, to all your engagement with people and a real drive for um, I think helping people to engage with you know, connect with themselves, their own hearts, and with others. So that we can sustain each other, uh, and that that link between yourself and Lyle's message is, is is really powerful. So I thank you both most sincerely for for engaging. The Moss, I can't, I cannot let you go without putting you on the spot. All Just right, once, please go. What is it that keeps you doing the job that you're doing just now? So to our listeners, we're obviously upending the entire hour of the podcast, but, <laughs> but will, will, will you repeat the question, please, Angela? What is it that's just, that keeps you doing the job that you're doing? What is it that, um, I, I won't say sustains you, I suppose, not in your well-being, but why are you doing the job that you're doing? What is it that drives you? Well, I, I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can, but like, I would have been very much an academic student in school. 
So mm-hmm. I went from leaving cert to degree to master's to HJ, but I followed that well trusted treadmill of, of academic education. But I have a very clear memory in my head in different classes in school, understanding there were students in the classroom with me who weren't happy, who weren't in the same zone. They there's nothing particularly wrong with them as such, but they just weren't enjoying the learning. Didn't seem to be. I couldn't put words at the time, but I remember thinking there has to be other ways of teaching to engage students like my friends in class. So I'm okay. I'm happy with it, but it's not it's not inclusive of everybody else. I had that instinctive sense that drove me to want to be a teacher. I I couldn't under, and I, I was probably driven by that sense of well, if you, if you just uh, reframe how you present us, it, but it's the same content, it's going to be fine. I've come to understand it's not as simple as that. What sustains me now, uh, and it's reflected in different things we're discussed here, I, I'm, I, I, I like Niall, I definitely thrive on conversations like this that definitely energizes me. Mm. And I have this instinctive sense that there is massive untapped potential in our communities. Yeah, we, ain't even, we haven't even started yet. And if we could actually, as I've seen at Beacon's events around the country, it's such a simple approach in some ways, but so powerful in others, what communities can do for themselves when they're given the support and the resources to come together in an open, uh, non-prescriptive way is amazing. And what children can do, say, what teachers can do when they listen to them and vice versa, the school is the parents. It's just mind-blowing. That is a lovely way to finish the conversation, a conversation that has, I, I've learned an awful lot from it. And um, I, I, I think it is is it's something that sustains me. I love having these conversations Big time. and I'm privileged to have those conversations with people who have so much to give. Absolutely. So thank you for arranging <laughs> this. It, it has been a pleasure. Oh, absolutely. And it, I mean, this is this is the first podcast, only the fourth or fifth of the series where I've been upended at the end of it, Angela. So you're really you're, you're really scoring now, I'd have to say. That's, this is a really innovative <laughs> approach. So I, I must uh, t- close off officially. Uh, and we'll have to have this conversation again because we didn't have to come to you on that question, Angela, but I'm conscious of the time of the podcast here. So I want to thank, we do have, believe it or not, and a, a growing international audience. Um, we mentioned some of them that, that in the last episode in the podcast series, but we have listeners from Rwanda, Canada, and Spain. So all, all around the world, the audience is growing. So to our audience who are listening, I hope you enjoyed that from beginning to end in, in, in terms of the different meanders we took. Um, and if you've enjoyed the episode, please share the link with your friends and colleagues and family to the podcast series. You can subscribe to the podcast series, Light in a Fire all things teaching and learning in the usual way and we find us on all major podcast channels apple spotify and so on if you have any comments or thoughts about future guests for the series or themes you would like us to cover you can find us on twitter the, hash, the handle is at teaching council so you can directly tag us there with your thoughts and reactions to the series or email us on the teaching council the email address being communications communications at teachingcouncil.ie my thanks, my heartfelt thanks to Niall and Angela. It has been a most enjoyable and illuminating conversation. Uh, and to all our listeners, stay safe and stay connected. And thank you all. <laughs>